Well, good morning, church family. And again, welcome to our church family online. We're looking forward to uh, the time of full bodily presence. And uh, we're celebrating the fact that, you know, Easter, Jesus rose from the dead in bodily form. And so we're looking forward to Easter Sunday, encouraging people that are uh, feeling comfortable to come back to church in bodily form. Because uh, as much as uh, uh, we're grateful for being online and, and uh, our extended church family, we are looking forward to God regathering his people. Well, when you come to the scriptures and particularly to understanding who God is, it's essential that um, we hold two of his attributes, two of his truths in balance. Here's what they are. God is love. Throughout the scriptures, the, the scriptures reveal how God is love in himself. He is perfect love. He is pure love. He is unfailing love. The great picture Jesus gives us of the Father is that um, for those, and it, all of us are in the story, that have sinned, that have gone and lived in a distant country, that have dishonored our Father, that when we turn our hearts towards home, He is filled with love. He loves His children. He's forgiving. He rushes out to greet them. He celebrates because He has a heart of love for people. The scriptures say, God desires all men to be saved. He is pure and perfect love. At the same time, the scriptures tell us and reveal to us that God is holy, that he is set apart from sin, that he is morally perfect, that he dwells in unapproachable light, that there is no sin, there's no evil, there's no wickedness, there's no shadow in him. He is perfect holiness. The image is he is perfect light, but guess what happens when light comes in Touch with darkness. The two cannot coexist. The light by nature destroys the darkness. And because of God's perfect purity and his perfect holiness, it causes him to judge sin. Whenever he comes in contact with sin, whenever he comes in contact with evil, that evil, that sin is judged. And so we have to hold both of those because the scriptures reveal God is both of those at the same time. He is absolute love and he is absolute holiness when we come to the scriptures and we read a phrase called the day of the Lord we have to hold both of these truths in balance one in each hand the day of the Lord is throughout the scriptures the reference to the climax of human history where God is going to pour out his righteous judgment born out of his holiness, born out of the fact that he judges sin. But at the end of history, he is going to pour out his righteous judgment in a catastrophic event on earth, or at least a series of catastrophic events on earth. He is the God of judgment, and history will end with the great judgment of God on human earth, followed by his heavenly king, the Messiah, coming back to make all things new, to create a new universe, a new heavens, and a new earth. But that, those two things, uh, catastrophic judgment on earth and the return of the Messiah to rule, that's the day of the Lord. That's not a minor teaching in the scriptures. It's not a random thought. And so what I want to do for a moment is just show, walk us together through the scriptures and see. And we're going to get to the book of Revelation where we're studying. But I want to see that this is a, a major part of the book of Revelation, but it's announced and predicted throughout the scriptures. So the day of the Lord, in terms of your notes, and I hope you have an app, uh, or you can follow along on the screen, but if you have the app, it'll be right there in your notes, and you can refer to these at other times as well. 
The day of the Lord, what does it say? History will end. It's the climax of human history. With God's righteous judgment, his righteous judgment on sin and on evil on earth, and the Messiah, God's heavenly king, Jesus Christ's return to rule over a new creation. That's the day of the Lord. Now, this was announced by the prophets. This was nothing new um, to our day and age. Centuries ago, and I've just picked a couple, but many of the prophets speak of the day of the Lord. But listen to what uh, Jeremiah says. Sorry, not Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13. Wail, wail, deep grief and sadness, for the day of the Lord, there it is, is near. Now, here's an interesting thing. When the prophets speak about the day of the Lord, it's a phrase that speaks basically of God's judgment, but it always has in mind his future and ultimate judgment. But sometimes what the prophets would do is they would announce judgment coming at that time in history on those people on that event as a warning but with in mind the great and final judgment. So when he says it's near, it could well be that Israel was going to, and they did experience God's judgment in their generation, but it was only that in itself showed that this was a prophet of God because when it happened, it, it showed that, proved that their word was true. Uh, so it's both that for the Old Testament prophet. It may be a near impending event, but it ultimately looks at the final event. Just look at the words. It's near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Great destruction on the day of the Lord. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. This is a terrible day of judgment. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See, there it is, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. This is God's pouring out his righteous judgment on sin. To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. This great final day of judgment will have cosmic upheavals. That's just one example from Isaiah. One other quick one from Zephaniah. And many other prophetic references could be shared in terms of the day of the Lord. But listen to what Zephaniah says. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, what day? The day of the Lord, I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations. This is a worldwide event. To gather the kingdoms and what? Pour out my wrath on them. Great final act of judgment and the end of human history. All my fierce anger, the whole world. This is a global event will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. See, a couple of examples. The prophets uh, announced this great climax to human history that was marked by God's pouring out of, of righteous judgment. This was also taught by Jesus. In fact, Jesus, when he was talking about his own return, spoke about, and he quoted Isaiah. So I've just got the reference there in Matthew 24. He says, for then there will be great distress, great tribulation, great suffering from the beginning, the, uh, unequaled, in other words, this kind of suffering on earth with this judgment of God on earth has never happened before and it will never happen again, anything quite like this. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and the, uh, never to be equaled again, immediately after the judgment, the distress, the tribulation of those days, what does he do? He quotes Isaiah. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. There'll be cosmic upheaval. 
and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, because this great judgment will be followed by the return of Jesus to rule. This was um, announced by the prophets. It was taught by Jesus, and so it's to be expected the Holy Spirit would inspire the apostles. And sure enough, we, we're taught about the day of the Lord in the New Testament letters. So, for example, Paul says, Thou, brothers and sisters, about times and dates of Jesus' return, we do not need to write you. Don't waste your time trying to figure out the prophecies, trying to find out the date and time of Jesus' return. He says it's going to be a thief in the night. It'll come when you least expect it. Okay? He says, For you know very well that there it is, the phrase, the day of the Lord. This runs throughout Scripture. God's final act of judgment on earth, the return of the Messiah to rule, to make all things new. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What's the point? Comes when you least expect it. While people are saying peace and safety, what? Destruction will come on them suddenly. Um, John was there when Jesus gave a parable that, about his return that, that taught that Jesus was going to come like a thief in the night. And obviously Paul got the memo. He wasn't there in person, but Peter was right there when Jesus taught this. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 3. The, but the day of the Lord, there it is again. Do you see the day of the Lord? It runs throughout the scriptures. It will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. This will be a cosmic event. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Here's my point. Throughout the scriptures, and so it shouldn't surprise us when we get to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible that focuses on the return of Jesus Christ, that 10 chapters of the book are devoted to this great judgment on earth. And so that's where we're at in the book of Revelation right now, that uh, the, the, the day of the Lord was um, uh, announced by the prophets. It was taught by Jesus. It was uh, affirmed, it was uh, taught by the apostles under the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Revelation, we get more information, we get more revelation of what actually happens on the day of the Lord. We find that in Revelation chapter 6, starting in chapter 6. And can I just be honest with you, those of us that have been reading through the book and studying through the book and, and in our uh, connect groups, uh, learning together about the book, Revelation chapter 6 is where most people stop reading Revelation because uh, all of these judgments on earth, all of these judgments on earth, all of these judgments on earth. What I want to do this morning is we're not going to take the time even to read all of the chapters, but we're going to summarize them and, and look at this great theme of God's judgment on earth. When you start reading the book of Revelation, Revelation 1 is wonderful. God, the Holy Spirit opens a window into heaven. And um, the Holy Spirit reveals a glimpse of Jesus' glory as the risen Christ. And he speaks out of a heart of love and, and, uh, and, and, and instruction to his churches. But it's heavenly glory and, and the risen Christ speaking to his churches. And then you get to Revelation 4 and you get another window open into heaven. And you get a scene of the glory of God Almighty on the throne and the Lamb who is worthy. And all of creation and all of the angelic realms burst out in worship, and it's wonderful, and it's glorious. But what is the Lamb worthy of? Worthy of adoration, worthy of worship, yes. But in terms of reading the book, he is worthy, uniquely worthy, to open the scrolls. And what are the scrolls? They're judgments. You cannot separate the glory and the wonder of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 with all of the judgments that flow out of that, because Jesus is worthy to judge and then to rule the new creation. That's the point of the whole story. 
So if you uh, want to follow along, and we couldn't put all of these on one slide, but what I want to do is just an overview. This is the wrath of the Lamb, if you will. We know about the love of the Lamb. This is the wrath of the Lamb. And we wanted to put all of the three major judgments. The um, scroll judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. There's seven of each one. We wanted to put them all one screen to see the big picture, but there was too much. So we're going to go one screen at a time. So the first outpouring of judgment, this is just a summary. We're going to come back, and uh, there are some interludes in here, and so we're going to come back in our series and study some of the things that happen during these judgments. But I wanted us this morning to see the big picture, the big picture of judgment, the day of the Lord, God's wrath being poured out on human history before the return of Jesus Christ. First, the seal judgments. The first one is conquest. These are the four horses going out, but they're all horses of judgment. Nations fighting and trying to conquer and dominate other nations. With that, the second seal judgment is war. What does war do? Destroys lives. People die. Destruction. And thank God for, yes, those of us in the military that protect our country and and seek uh, righteousness on earth. But war, nobody wants war. Part of God's judgment on earth is going to be wars and destruction of human life. Famine goes with conquest and war and and economic hardship and people suffering. Death of one quarter of humanity is the fourth seal judgment. Then there's martyrdom. There are actually Christians who lose their lives in this time of of, uh, destruction on earth. And we'll come back and look at that. There are cosmic upheavals, and we've seen Isaiah talked about them, Jesus talked about them, John talks about them. There's a great earthquake, the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, the stars fall to earth. All of these are the first cycle of judgments on earth, the seal judgments. The second seal judgment actually unleashes all of the uh, trumpet judgments. And so the seventh judgment in both cases unleashes the next set of judgments. When you look at the trumpet judgments, here's the summary. One-third of the earth is destroyed by fire. A third of the planet destroyed by fire. A third of the sea and ships are destroyed. Not everything, but a third of the freshwater destroyed. We'll see in future series why there's a progression. There's a reason for it. But again, just looking at the big picture, there's great destruction on earth. Great suffering on earth. One-third of the sun, the moon, the stars are darkened. There's actually demonic torture of unbelievers. When you read that chapter, it's a terrible thing, but God unleashes demonic forces as part of his judgment. One-third of, another one-third of humanity is killed. So death, destruction, judgment, and then the seventh trumpet judgment simply unleashes another whole series of judgments. That takes us to the bowl judgments. Painful sores, death in the seas, destruction of fresh water. You see uh, multiple themes here. Intense heat from the sun, darkness and pain, demonic preparation for Armageddon, and then destruction of Babylon the Great. Chapter after chapter, from chapter 6 all the way through 16, judgment on earth, judgment on earth, God pouring out his righteous anger on earth. Now the question is, is there any hope? Is there an escape from God's righteous anger being poured out on earth? Is there a deliverance from God's righteous judgment of sin? And praise God, hallelujah, there is. And there is, John reveals that. In fact, the, um, the next uh, 
verses that we want to look at is John's own revelation in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Right in the middle of all of this judgment, there's great news. There is salvation. There is hope. There are people delivered from God's righteous judgment, his anger against sin. John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, huge number of people, beyond counting, that no one could count, a countless number of people. From, catch this, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne, they're in heaven, they're in God's presence, and before the Lamb, before Jesus Christ. They were wearing white robes signifying their purity, their forgiveness, their cleansing, their presence before God, and were holding palm branches in their hands, victory and peace and celebration. There is deliverance, there is salvation, and John sees it. Although he's gone, all of the revealed all of this judgment on earth, there are people who are delivered from that, who escape his righteous judgment, who stand in the presence of God. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. There is salvation, along with his righteous judgment on earth. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John sees a countless congregation of people, multinational, uh, every nation, multi-ethnic, multilingual, worldwide people standing who've been delivered into the presence of God from his righteous anger. The question is, this is the key question, how do you be a part of that congregation? How do you be a part of those people who are standing in God's presence celebrating cleansing, forgiveness, well, the scriptures are really clear, and if you don't get anything this morning outside of this, this huge theme of the judgment of God against sin and human earth, please catch this, and it's right there in your notes. How am I saved from God's righteous judgment? Trust Jesus for bearing the judgment for my sins, for my sins on the cross. That's the key. The scriptures reveal that, in one sense, God's righteous judgment has already been poured out on earth. It was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's the significance of the cross. The cross is the place of God's righteous judgment on sin, but it's also the place of his love, and that's where those two things come together. His righteous judgment on my sin and his love that put Jesus on the cross to suffer the penalty for my sin so that I'm forgiven, so that I'm declared righteous, so that I'm set free, so that I'm purified. That's the wonder of the cross. And we're celebrating that this morning before next week, celebrating the resurrection that Jesus demonstrated for all time, that he had the power and love over death that rose from the dead. But this morning we come to the cross, and I've shared this illustration before. I don't know any better way to share it than to understand how um, Jesus and his love and his death on the cross delivers me from God's righteous anger and judgment against my sin. It was a true story of a man who was walking on the prairies and, uh, to visit a neighbor, and he came around a, uh, a, a little bluff, and there before them was a massive uh, grass fire, fire uh, prairie fire. And if you've lived in the prairies, you know those things travel at the speed of wind, that you can't escape them. It was coming right for him and his daughter, and there was no escape from that fire. So what he did is he pulled out a match. He lit that match, and he threw it on the ground, and the dry grass started to, to burn, and as soon as it was uh, burned off a couple of feet, he grabbed his daughter and he stepped on the, the burned over ground. 
So guess what happened when that forest or when that uh, uh, prairie fire came near him? It hit the burn and it went around the burn. There was nothing there to burn. And it went around him and he was delivered safely. Well, I want you to take that personally because think of a forest fire. And we've got an image up on the screen here. If you were standing before a forest fire and those flames were being driven at you and you had no place to go, no place to escape, that's the image of God's righteous judgment on your sin and on mine. But when you come to faith in Jesus, the next screen shows burned over ground, where that ground has actually been burned over, and you can stand on that burned over ground, and you are safe because there's nothing there to be consumed anymore. That's an image of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you and for me, and that's why we celebrate communion as he's called us to this morning. And so we're going to come and recognize that by faith in Jesus Christ, by putting our faith in him, what he did on the cross for my sins and rising from the dead, we stand on burned over ground. His judgment has already been poured out on the cross on Jesus. And so how do we know that? Well, the New Testament teaches this throughout. The answer to the question, how am I saved from God's righteous judgment? Trust Jesus for bearing the judgment for my sins on the cross. Peter says this. He himself, Jesus, what did he do? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered the righteous penalty for your sins and mine on the cross. Paul says um, to a group of believers just like us here at New Hope Kailua, you turn to God, you put your faith in Jesus, you're not putting your faith in idols anymore to serve the living and true God. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you... you, um, Join the group that are waiting for his son from heaven. That's Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. But notice the last scene, the last phrase. Jesus, who what? He rescues us from the coming wrath. He rescues us from the judgment of God from our sins. So that we join that countless congregation in the presence of God with purity, with joy, with celebration. And then... um, It's all by his love. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrated his own love. (laughs) The cross is the greatest demonstration of his love. For us in this, while we were still sinners, while you were off in a distant land where you didn't even care about God, where you were living in rebellion in God, where I wasn't interested in God, he sent his son before any response from you with an invitation and a demonstration of his love. He says this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life. He gave his full-hearted love for us. Since we have now been justified, we're now declared righteous, we're uh, forgiven, we're made pure, we're cleansed, we're given white robes in the presence of God in heaven and palm branches. Uh, How much more shall we, note this, be saved from God's wrath? Over and over again, we're saved from God's righteous judgment for our sins because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We receive that by putting our trust in Jesus. And that's why we celebrate communion. And that's why whether these uh, great climactic events of judgment happen in our life or not, if we're uh, released from this life through through death, we uh, join that congregation in heaven. And there is no condemnation. (laughs) Isn't that the great verse of the New Testament? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us are worthy of God's judgment because he is absolutely pure and perfect and you are not and neither am I. But the cross brings God's solution where he pours out his righteous anger on sin. And yet in love, 
He forgives and he declares righteous and he purifies people who put their faith in Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to celebrate communion. I want to invite you to the great exchange, if you will. And here's what we're going to do. You uh, have this little red um, half sheet. There's a place on confession there. If you haven't for a moment, I just want you to make this personal. You don't have to put your name on it. There's no place to put your name. God knows all of our hearts. And so this is anonymous uh, on earth, but just put a confession where, where you recognize that you are worthy of God's judgment. Maybe the worst sin you've ever done, maybe recognition of all the sins you've done, or maybe just, I wrote out this morning uh, for myself, God, I am just as uh, deserving of your righteous judgment for my sin. Just write out your own confession, your own heart in your words. Make it a personal thing of faith. But in a moment, what I'm going to invite you to do is take that um, confession of sin, and there's a verse on there that's a wonderful verse from Colossians 2 that said when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what did he do? He nailed our indebtedness, all of what we owed to God for, uh, for our sin. He nailed that to the cross, and we're going to come forward and uh, nail our sins to the cross, and then come forward and take, this is the exchange, we're going to nail our sins to the cross, and then we're going to take communion, take the forgiveness, take the shed blood of Jesus, take the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus with the communion emblems. And uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a video that will remind us of uh, Jesus suffering on the cross for you and for me. And then uh, you can um, write out your confession as you feel uh, led to. And then after that, I'll come and pray for the emblems of communion, and we'll just invite you to come forward. You can nail your sins to the cross, come through, receive communion, go back to your seat, take communion at your leisure. And during that time, the worship team will come, and they'll just lead us in worship. We'll just have a family house of worship while we celebrate communion together. But before we do that, take a look at this video. Just to be where the one he loved. How many times has he broken that promise? It has never been done. But I never climb the highest mountain. But I walk the hill.
Let's pray together and then we'll invite you to celebrate communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, it's hard to see that video and just to, to see the suffering. Just an expression, the physical suffering, it's real. We know that crucifixion was a torturous death. Thank you for your love that was willing to suffer physically. But beyond the physical suffering, Lord, we know you gave your life and you suffered God's righteous judgment for my sin, for our sin when you suffered on the cross, that you bore my sins in your body on the cross. So Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your heart of love and as we take these emblems, we remember that the bread speaks of your body which was broken, that the juice speaks of your blood that was shed, the two elements of your life and you voluntarily and, and willingly out of a heart of love gave up your life so that we might live, so that we might be declared righteous, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might be purified, so that we might be part of your countless congregation in your presence, escaping the righteous wrath of God that's going to be thrown out. It's going to be unleashed on earth. So Lord, we thank you. We take these emblems gratefully. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 